G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. This is uh, Damien. Um, good to see you up in the... Wish I could see you up in Lismore, but I'm in the Tweed Valley driving a little bit further away from you. What do you do? What are you up to, Dame? Um, well, I start work at two each morning, you know, six nights a week. I drive a fruit and veg delivery truck, so um, I'm heading to, through the Tweed Valley to deliver to the restaurants and cafes who, who want it for fruit and veg for brekkie and lunch and even dinner tonight. So I've got my eight-year-old, Miley, she comes along with me on the weekend, or one of my four kids usually jumps in because they... I think they'd like the um, the croissant or the um, hot chocolate that the cafe owners give them on the way. What an adventure for a kid, Damien. Um, great great thing to do. Kids love to do stuff, don't they? What are we doing? Yeah. I talked to this little niece of mine and uh, uh, I said, coming over, and she said, yeah, she said, I hope we can do fun things today. Um, <laughs> yeah, they just, uh, they want, you know, you've got to sort of entertain them. But um, driving around in a truck, I reckon, would be great, Damien. Yeah, I enjoy it, and you know, like um, it, it's you know probably the best quality time I have with them all week. You know, we're probably in for a nineteen-hour day, so you know. And you've got a captive audience too, so you can tell them about the meaning of life and all that sort of stuff. And you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. I always, yeah. I'm a bit didn't about that. And I always like to, you know, when you've got them trapped, you tell yeah, them, that's right. you tell like them how life audience. should. I can, I can give them both my jokes every time, <laughs> and uh, things. We're we're pretty excited this afternoon when we get. When we get back home this afternoon, we have this annual race in our street called the Fastest Runner in Clifford Street. So that that's on stage at five o'clock, and you know there's a five-dollar trophy up for grabs for whoever gets it this year. So um, the kids in the neighbourhood are um, pretty excited about that. And sadly enough, four of the six trophies I have in my um, lifetime of um, trophies are Fastest Runner in the Clifford Street trophy. So yeah, I haven't you know. Haven't had too many sporting prowess moments throughout my 52 years. Who does, Damien? Who does? I mean, but the, I reckon the fastest runner in Clifford Street. I'd like to be there for that. Do you get a big crowd? Uh, we get about 50, um, 50 or 60. To, to be honest, we've this will be the tenth one. Um, my family and I have been away for five years in Vanuatu, so um, uh, it's had a five-year little um, hiatus. Uh, break and, and yeah, hi- hiatus or however you say that, and uh, things. So yeah, we're keen to kind of. Um, get it revamped again. It's a nice thing for the community, you know, it's all, it's all you know, 250-metre dash and, and it's done and then we all just, you know, um, stand around and have a yarn and head back to our houses and, and things. So hopefully we'll dodge um, dodge any rain clouds that are around, but, you know, as you're probably finding in Lismore and I'm down here in the Tweed Valley, it looks like a beautiful morning so far. It's lovely. Uh, Damien, where is Clifford Street? Uh, it's in South Golden Beach, so yeah, come on down, Masabo Maka. Like, what time? Uh, five o'clock this afternoon. Yeah, I'm not going to run. Um, no, you, you can spectate, you know, and, and there's a number of people might have that meander or stroll, or um, I don't even know what they call half the gates that these guys um, do to get from one end of the street to the other. But uh, yeah, it's, it's usually the teenagers that are, um, you know, odds-on favourites to to take it out. I only got my four um, four trophies because um, back in the day there was lots of preschoolers that had had the wood on them, and then you know often I'd time it when the surf was good, so that the um, teenagers were all out in the surf, and I could kind of just claim claim victory by default in a way. But uh, yeah, it's all caught on now, and everyone's keen for that trophy. And I suppose that year the Russians were suspended because of drugs, so they they weren't competing. No, no, you know, and uh, yeah. Even um, saying Bolt's a bit intimidated. He's gone into retirement just so he doesn't have to, um, you know, 
compete against the. I think it's a lot. I think that's a lovely thing. The fastest, they call the fastest runner in Clifford Street. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So come down if you. Five o'clock in. In South Golden Beach. It's just north north of Brunswick Head. As the crow flies about three k's north of Brunswick Head. So it's kind of like a um, sleepy little village of about eight eight blocks of houses on on the coast. You know, beautiful neck of the woods. If I um, I'm I'm not in a good. place in uh, on Sunday afternoon but um <laughs> I'll try and get down Damo um no worries yeah yeah well I love your program to, to be honest the five years I spent in um Vanuatu just now I, I miss your program and I miss sport and um so yeah it's, it's good to drive a truck and be able to tune in the most program each Sunday morning Damien great to talk to you mate I'll see you at five o'clock um in uh, South Golden Beach have a great day. All right, mate. Please thank Damien, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Do you your name? Damo. How are you, Damo? Good, mate. Good. Lovely to meet you. You were second here. I was. Only by... Arthur was first, yeah. He pushed me out of the way. Did he? Yeah. yeah was. <laughs> There's a prize for first, and I'll probably give you a prize too, a little album or something like that. Tell me your story, Damo. Okay. I retired in February. Had enough of work. Um, and now I'm just on the road. What were you doing? And I was a chef. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I come from a place called Queenscliff in Victoria and uh, worked at a beautiful little hotel there for 10 or 12 years and then uh, decided the government's going to pay me now. I'm going, going, wallop, going on the wallaby. <laughs> so uh, here I am. I'm, I'm visiting my kids in, in Queensland up to, for Christmas and uh, off to Tamworth in January. Yeah, we're going to Tamworth. Come cool. We'll, we'll catch up. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go and have a bet. Just hang on, Damo. I'm just going to get me clock. Well, I, I want to keep talking to you because um, I suspect on the program this year the big topics have been coffee uh, and bikes, especially in Beijing, Shenzhen, and, and also chefing, people who cook. Um, it's the, it's the flavour of the year, cooks have... Isn't it amazing? Where did I see that story? Uh, I think I saw it on Letterman and... Um, he was interviewing something, somebody about something and he said that this bloke he was interviewing, he said he was the reason that chefs are out of the kitchen now they're celebrities. Um, see, the best place for a chef, Damon, no offence, is out in the kitchen. Get away, we don't want to see you. All we want to see is the food. But no, now we, the food second, we just see all the you know, swearing and the whole, the whole chef thing. But did you, were you able to cash in on that? Me? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was out the back, mate. I was making it all look pretty and send it out to you guys. But you see how chefing's changed? It's the whole thing's changed, isn't it? Yeah, and I really can't say on air what I think about it. <laughs> no, you can't, Damo. So what what uh, sort of things did you... What's your specialty? Oh, look, I do everything. I'm, I'm the old school. Um, we did everything, so we didn't just specialise in one area. <laughs> so I do everything from desserts right through to the you know, functions for 10,000, 12,000 people. Wow. So that's why I go to Darwin every year. And, uh, Darwin Cup Carnival. Oh, Darwin Cup, yeah, good. Yeah. So I go up there for five weeks every year and do the what? centre field. Oh, cooking? Yep. Yeah, yeah three and a half thousand people I do in the middle. and uh, In the middle of the race course? In the race course, mm-hmm. yeah. So captive audience I've got. So, I mean, you retired from what? Chefing. And, but so you're now, you're, 
you sort of contract. You can do it. Someone rings you up and say, Damo, we've got 2,000 people to fill, as we said here, uh, three, ten people down here at the, the uh, museum this morning at the gallery. Um, can you come and cook for them? You'll do it. Well, I'll only do that one because being on the um, government payroll, I can only earn so much. So that's my one gig a year. Love Darwin, great town. And what do you love about cooking? It seems to me, um, I used to think about my mum and making meals every for the family and, and my breakfast, lunch, tea, it'd drive you nuts, wouldn't it? No, no, it, it's just like any job. You know, you're at the, um, you've got to create it, you've got to make it look good and um, you just get the accolade when, it come, when you come back. Hopefully it doesn't come back at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good trade. You know, you're never out of work with it. No, I know. As I said, it's the flavour of the month. Um, so, and what got you into that? Um, family. Uh, my father was the uh, catering manager for the MCG for nine or ten years. And uh, if um, Damien wanted some spending money, he had to go and earn it. So I started there and eventually worked my way up into the kitchen. And the rest is history. So my brother's a chef. He's a very well-known chef in Melbourne. And... Um, yeah, it's just continuing on. All right. Damo, nice to nice to talk to you, mate. Yeah. Thanks for coming down. And there'll be a there'll be a present um uh for coming second. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should go you should go down to the fastest bloke in Clifford Street, the Sava. I'm going. Yeah, right. Why don't we all go down? I'll cook the sausages. I'll do the sausages. <laughs> Come down, Damo, I'm gonna go down in where is it? South Golden Beach. I think it's the story of the year. Just a little local thing. The fastest runner, I think, not bloke, it was the fastest runner, male or female, in, uh, in Clifford Street, South Carolina. Please thank Damo, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. How are you? What's your name? Hi, Macca. Good morning. Dave Alley. How are you, Dave? Very well, thank you. Welcome oh, you're the Dave... You walked... You're like Andrew Harper. Dave, uh, you walked um, where, where, around Australia or... That's right. In 2011, I uh, cycled around Australia and then backed up and ran around in 2015. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, yeah, two years ago. It was, yes. So it's uh, been a long two-year recovery, but uh, feeling great. <laughs> How'd you like to be doing what Andrew's doing, pulling a cart too? Yes, well, that's taking it to a whole new level, isn't it? Tough yeah. work. But you, you had to do it in a certain time, didn't you? You were on a yeah, I don't think Andrew's got a, any timetable, but you, you were... Yeah, so uh, for the run, I was looking to break uh, Pat Farmer's existing record, um, which he did. And uh, it was a record held for 18 years, and I was lucky enough to take five days off that record. Exactly. Now, Dave, how did you, how did you pull up after? It was a... Yes, exactly. How did you pull up? Did it take you a while to recover? It did. It was a fairly lengthy process. Um, it took me, it was over six months before I could put shoes and socks on, so it's lucky I've got an understanding wife. Wow, wow, why? What, what, what had happened? Your feet had got flatter or swollen or what? <laughs> yeah, it was a combination of things, mainly a lot of stiffness in my lower back and, and through the hips. So, it, uh, yeah, it was a, a tough recovery, but uh, I'm back now. And you're not going to do it again, are you? Uh, I said once was enough after the cycle, but after the run, I think I'll retire. Yeah, exactly. It's a big, uh, it's a big, uh, 
a big thing in your life, isn't it? And and uh, I suppose it's just the psychological thing too. Uh, that was a change too. It was not only physically demanding, but I think more so mentally. Macca to go and run sort of 80, 80 kilometres a day for 174 days straight. It's pretty tough mentally to to back up day after day. Um, yeah, I spoke to a bloke um, look, 15 years ago who was swimming the Murray River and he uh, swam it every day and he'd get in the river and he got out at night, of course, but I said, how's the Murray? And he says, oh, Mac, it's like Carlton cold drinking water. I mean, it was really quite cold in the Murray and... Um, he said it got, got to him after a while, got to him. He had to get in the river and keep swimming and get out and get in and get out and get in and say, oh, not again, I've got to, you know, I suppose you had those thoughts too. Yes, absolutely. It was tough each and every day. There was some point where I, I wanted to, uh, to go home, but um, it was a matter of, of pushing on and fighting those mental demons and, and doing what I had to do and taking one step after the other. And Dave, what do you, what do, you do with yourself now? Um, I'm a police officer, so I'm working with a program for, for disengaged kids at the moment. Um, so I'm really enjoying the challenges that come with that. And um, also looking to do some work with our local Lords Taverners, Northern New South Wales branch here. So hoping for another challenge at some point and, and linking up with those guys. It's, well, it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about disengaged kids. We turned up here yesterday and I parked a car over there and some disengaged kids came around and... They pinched a hundred bucks out of uh, one of our um, uh, bags. We know it was only half open. They were just uh, like street kids, I suppose. I don't know. And every town's got them in every city. Um, I don't know what. They're probably about 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. But um, that wasn't so bad. I just realised what happened. But I think I told the people, some of the people here the story. The rest of the story was later on after we'd set up here, which took us about five or six hours. What's the little one? What's his name? Asher. Asher. How are you, Asher? Um, we, uh, we went for tea at uh, um, one of the local hotels here to have some tea about 7 o'clock and I was, as I was going past the level crossing there were some people waiting to cross so, um, and I stopped and said where's the hotel and of course I was right next to it at the time I didn't know but anyway she said yeah it's just here mate his name was Jake and Rhiannon I think his, his uh, partner was named and they said um, um he said, yes, he said, I'm just going over to the tab, he said, uh, in the pub to back, um, uh, not Tom Melbourne, what's the other one? Uh, Blackheart Bart, which uh, there's a big, there was a big race in, in Ascot. Um, so, and that reminded me, and I thought, oh, right, because I only like to back races where there's a lot of good horses in, so you, maybe you've got a chance. So anyway, so we went in, and we both backed the winner, and it was 20 well, so I won $600. <laughs> so so um, we're fine with the money, but yeah, disengaged kids is a problem everywhere, isn't it? Um, I suppose, yeah, bad parenting, all sorts of things. Yeah, it's a whole host of things. I think there's a lot more things out there for kids now. I think um, look, computers, phones and iPads um, are something we probably haven't needed from a kid's perspective. And also the different ranges of drugs and things that are out there now. Um, previously, I heard your earlier interview with Michael, the retired sergeant, saying that Back in his day, the alcohol was the main issue, but now there's so much more out there. So there's a lot of things we have to battle with, and it's just finding young people, finding out what their passion is and sending them down that path and, and getting them on the right path and, and contributing back to society. Dave, it's great to talk to you, mate. Good luck with whatever you do in the future. Um, you should take some of them disengaged kids and take them running around Australia. That would straighten them out, wouldn't it? Straighten us all out. It <laughs> would keep them busy, that's for sure. Great to talk to you, Macca. Please thank Dave Alley, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Dave.
Uh, I've been on the road this week, and uh, but before I left uh, the big smoke, I went to a police medal and uh, presentation uh, ceremony where policemen who've done exemplary service and long service and things like that got awards. I spoke to um, I spoke to a uh, a sergeant retired just recently retired. Uh, um, Michael Martin, and I'm sure you'd like to hear what he has to say. This is Sergeant Michael Martin, retired. I'm at the Police Medal and Awards presentation ceremony. ceremony. Yes. <laughs> it's a mouthful. I'm talking to Michael Martin, who got some awards today, a long-time serving police officer, recently retired, been retired, what, a year? Yes, yeah, I retired on the 1st of December last year. I was a police officer for 45 years. How do you look back on all that time? I must admit, I feel it as an honour and a privilege to be able to serve the community. And I really say that from the bottom of my heart, where I love particularly with people with mental health issues and domestic violence issues, these young people that are addicted to drugs. It breaks your heart when you look at them with their age and, when you, and also with the homeless people, where you see them where they might have an addiction of some kind. My wife and I went to the city on the weekend and you see those homeless people and it just breaks your heart when you see how young they were. When I started working at Darlinghurst in 1971, walking the beats, they tended to be older people who were, um, had a drinking problem, but nowadays you look at some of these young children and they're not all addicted to drugs and they don't all have mental health issues. Some of them might just have left home for some reason because they can't get on with their... There might have been a change where mum might find a new boyfriend, the new boyfriend doesn't like the uh, kids and they argue, and so therefore the kids end up on the streets. And with the, the mental health issue, I don't believe they're getting the help that they, uh, they deserve. It's, I don't know, Moggy, you'd know better than I would, but it seems to be, I don't know if it's just reported more, but there seems to be more of that. There was one young girl that was living in her car and she spent time at a mental health facility and when she was discharged, she gravitated to the Mossman area and she was living in her car. And it used to break my heart anyway. I got the chance to meet this young lady. She was only 25 years old and how I got to meet her is that the particular hospital had issued a certificate for her to be taken back there whether it was North Shore or the particular hospital um, where she'd been admitted. And I finally got her to come in and I sat there for nearly five hours in my own time with her because the ambulance kept getting tied up and I just felt so sorry for this poor young girl. She's got no family, she's by herself and she would be in the mental facility and they'd get her to the point where she was progressing really well and then she'd be released. And then the cycle would start all over again. But what was sad when she was living in a car when she'd ring the police, the young officers thought that she was either on drugs or intoxicated. She wasn't on drugs or intoxicated. She'd sit in that car for four or five days, it was only an, hold an Astra, and she didn't sleep. I'm pretty good at um, sussing people out. Normally, if I can talk to somebody within a few minutes, I can tell whether they're genuine or not. I looked at this young girl, you could see it in her eyes, and I thought, she's not a drug addict, she might have mental health issues. And my wife said, well, what do you do? Do you give them all money? And I said, if I had the money in my wallet, I would. I'd give them all a house. I'd give them somewhere to live if I could. <laughs> and the same is with mental health people, where if I was talking to someone with a mental health issue, you don't stand up like this, you sit down like this. And I used to actually sink down. And when I was talking to Daniela, I made sure that I was on her level. Because if you stand over them, they feel like you're bullying them. So when she'd ring up and ask to talk to me, the young fellow on the station would probably think, well, she's drug addicted or she's got an issue. She hadn't slept. And she told me that when she came in and spoke to me. And she still used to call me after that, and that was probably a year or... Oh, no, a couple of years ago, because I've been out for years, it's gone that fast. But it was people like that, and the mentally uh, ill people, and also to a domestic violence. They're the ones that you feel sorry for. When the mothers are being injured, and they've got little kids, 
or being abused by the husband. I'm talking to Sergeant Michael Martin, recently retired, long-time serving police officer. Michael, we hear a lot about police work and you've just uh, articulated some of it. Um, and yet you said in your little speech there, they dragged you up to make a little speech, that you loved going to work every day. Uh, I mean, it's a tough gig. I mean, we, we who are on the outside only hear about it, but we don't have to do that every day. But you said you loved going to work. I, I must admit I did. What I used to love, and that's what I set up on the stage, where I loved helping those young kids. Because whether you're a journalist, whether you're a doctor, no, a mechanic, wherever you, whatever profession you're involved in, you always need someone to show you how to do the job and to do it properly. When I worked at Darlinghurst, I was shown how to do it uh, and do it properly. And I always try to impart that knowledge on the young kids because they need all the help that they can get because we don't have the senior police that we used to work in the streets. And you said also that um, <laughs> you're talking to your, your brethren here, but you said... Um I miss it every day. What, I still so, do. I've been gone for 12 months and I still miss it every day. So what, what, was, your, what was your plan? What do you do? Go fishing? Um, go bowling? Oh, uh, no, no. <laughs> what do you do? We're doing, we're doing a little bit of travelling, but, but even then, you can do so much travel and you can do so many things, but you still miss it because it's true what they say. It's actually the police family. You actually care about these people like they're your brothers and sisters. As they say, sometimes you even put your life on the line for them. I remember one you were at Bathurst in 1977 and um, the bikies decided that they wanted to attack the police and there were probably a couple of hundred bikies and only about 30 or 40 police and we stood there and we stood our ground and I think to this day that's the only thing that saved us uh, because they had they were all intoxicated because they'd been there from the Thursday night, Friday night to Saturday night they decided that they wanted to get the cops but we all stood there and thought well whatever happens we stand here side by side. That's why I respect the military so much too. Michael, great to talk to you. Congratulations on your service. I also think that when people like you retire, they should be uh, should be drawn upon because you've got a lifetime of knowledge in there, haven't yes, you? Yes, yeah, uh, I have. I have. Um, but I feel very humble, and particularly coming to this um, uh, ceremony today, I still feel humble, even after all of these years, to receive these the uh, medals and to receive this watch from the association. It's an honour and a privilege, uh, and I've just loved it. Michael, congratulations! Lovely to meet you. Thanks Good on you very mate. much. On my way up here uh, uh, this week, I called in to uh, uh, see a bloke who'd uh, emailed me. We were talking um, about, at the time, nuts and bolts, because I'd met a bloke who makes nuts and bolts. And as you know, in Australia, everything's difficult, but manufacturing is very difficult too, competing with um, overseas countries with different wage rates, all those sort of things. Um, this bloke is an inspiration. His name is Raymond McLaren, and... Uh, as part of his, uh, if you've taken a, take a, um, say an onion and slice it in half and that's a cross section of whatever, uh, a bit of fruit or a banana or an orange and that's reasonably easy to do. What Raymond's done in, he's got a little museum on his place because he's a manufacturer, he makes stuff, you'll hear it in this story, but he, he does cross sections of really interesting manufacturing pieces like pumps and stuff. And he cuts them and he's got a, a perfect workshop where he can... So he's got... And he's done a Winchester rifle. Have a listen. This is Raymond McLaren and his story. Have a listen. I'm at Andromeda Industries, which is in the Moombies, the Moombie Ranges. You'll find that on your maps. I'm talking to Raymond McLaren. His passion, interest is engineering. And you've got... This is your little museum, if you like, Raymond. Yeah, it's a bit like a museum. It's different in some ways, but uh, what I want to show here is, is display the, the artistic side of fine engineering. Inside these mechanisms, which most people will never see, 
is beautiful artwork. Things like the CV joint in a motor car. Most motor cars now have a CV joint in the front axle so that they can drive the front wheel as it turns. Now, they've been around for a fair while, but they're, they're a beautiful mechanism. You'll never see one because you've got to cut them open to see what's inside. What are some of your other favourites? I've got a Winchester 92 rifle here. It's been sectioned open to have a look at that, see how it works. Very interesting because Winchester rifle was more or less the beginnings of American manufacture. That particular example is, is interesting because of that. Americans were asked to manufacture these arms in large quantities and, and uh, that's where the mechanisation of industry more or less came from in America, manufacture of Winchester rifles. And yeah. you have a story about the internal, you were going to tell me about the internal combustion engine. Well the internal combustion engine is interesting because it's, it's a very simple device, a basic principle and I, I've been working on alternative to engines for, for 40 years and put a lot of thought into this and the more I think about the internal combustion engine the more I admire it. It's a beautiful piece of equipment. It is so elegantly simple. This is a collection of your lifetime collection, I suppose. How did you, how did you become an engineer, if you like? Well, I started engineering at Newcastle. I did uh, my engineering certificates at Newcastle Technical University College way back in the 50s. And I've been engineering all my life. I mean, built up my company here. And my job is to bring engineering to the basic processes we use here at Moonby. And did you, as a kid, were you always fiddling and tinkering and unscrewing bits and trying to put them back together and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I was like that. Playing with Meccano sets? Yeah, Yeah, I had a Meccano set. I got in terrible trouble with my dad pulling a grease gun apart. But (laughs) but my dad got me a Meccano set early on, and that was quite good. But by the time I was 15, I was making my own guns. Could you imagine that these days? In high school, manufacturing repeating rifles. Why did you want to make a gun? I needed more firepower, a bit like Winchester. Uh, my uncle, Harold, had a property, and he had lots of rabbits, and he hated rabbits with a passion. <laughs> and we used to go out shooting rabbits at night time with a spotlight. And he said, look, Raymond, he said, we've got to have more firepower. You've got to get a repeating rifle. We've got to get more firepower and get, get these little rabbits. So that's how it came about, and I got interested in that. And that groundwork laid for me the, the mental processes of, of designing stuff. They say Australians are, uh, we've had to make do so we become very inventive. If you're out on the farm and the axle breaks, um, you know, you come up with something or a, a way to do stuff. A little stump jump plough, for God's sake. Uh, is that, uh, do you find that in Australians? Yeah, well, I think so. Australians do tend to think up things and make do, but no, no more so than the Americans. They're, they're well known for this sort of stuff as well. Mm. But in a previous era, we had to make do with a lot of stuff and come up with relatively these days, simple solutions. Your work's here, Andromeda Industry. I notice big rubber mats which look like conveyor belts. So what, do you recycle that sort of thing, do you? Yeah, well, they are conveyor belts, Mac. Yeah, oh, right. there, are, there are many, many conveyor belts out there. Some of those weigh up to 20 tonnes a roll. We buy all that from the mining industry all over Australia and uh, we bring it here to Moonby and convert it into what's called split belt. And that split belt is thinner sheets of rubber used by the horse industry and agri-salt industry all over the country and other industries as well. So it's a very simple thing, elegantly simple, Hmm. but needs special tools, special tractors, special machines, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it seems to me that a bloke like you, and engineers generally what I know and meet uh, when I meet them, they're always thinking about things and not only why is it so, but uh, how could I do that or why we should be able to do that. Is that the way you think about things all the time? You're looking for new ways, like you were talking about another engine? And I guess so, yeah, I do. I think about those things all the time. Like The conveyor belt to me is simple stuff, but the, the, the equipment and machinery and processes behind it is, is where I come in to make, design the tools modify the tractors, build the special winding machines. And then, of course, my company does the marketing. How is it doing business out in the bush? Is it good? Um, hard to get work or easier to get workers or what? 
Well, it's a bit of a two-edged sword for the for the split belt and the rubber belt. It's pretty good here. It's a good location, but you need plenty of space. We've got 14 acres here to work with. For the steel cable division, which is more specialised, most of our customers are not here. They're all over Australia. It's probably not the best location for that. It just happens to be that I was here and I liked that business, and so we got going here. And how did, why did you get into business? It all started through a hobby, actually. I, I did engineering at Newcastle, and I, while I was there, I, I watched the blokes doing splicing wire rope. And for some reason, it, it interested me. It, it fascinated me. How to splice wire rope? And so when I left uh, Newcastle and I started going around Australia on trips... I took along some mailing spikes and tools and did splicing for people, basic splicing work, and I found there was work everywhere, and that's how the business got started. Everywhere I'd go, people wanted splicing done, slings made. So that's how it began. And that, that interest actually came, a lot of that came from that, that book I borrowed from Newcastle Library. Which was? I borrowed a book called Not Splicing and Fancy Work, and in there was, there was a lot of stuff about not splicing, weaving, plaiting, braiding, that sort of stuff. I kept the book, and about in, in 2010 I found the book. I still had it. I had a pang of conscience. I thought, I'd better return this book to Newcastle Library. That's so, a Jerry Fo- Seinfeld story, <laughs> and my story too. I returned a book to school for about 30 years later. <laughs> so I rang Newcastle Library and... and talking around you she said oh she said yeah you can return that book she said, look i said it's been a very important thing to me i said i, I really learned the basics of a whole industry from this little book really it was a hobby first and it became a business and an industry so i'd be happy to return it and pay the fine she said oh yeah at one, at one cent a day it's five thousand dollars so I, I paid the five thousand dollar fine that's probably where Jerry Seinfeld got the uh, story idea now you've got this displayed here your oleostatic pump who did the cross-section of it? Oh, I've done all the cross-section. Wow. you. Yeah, I, I do it myself. I've, I've got a very good workshop j- just here. But uh, now I, So you cut a cross-section of the pump so people can see yeah. how this works. And it's not as easy as it looks. You've got to be very careful to cut it so you don't de- destroy it. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Cut I'm not, in the wrong place, it's yeah, destroyed. Yes, you can see it uh, sometimes in a drawing, a cross-section of whatever. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. to actually do it, That's hard steel, what's that? The outside is made of uh, special aluminium alloys. The inner parts are made of hardened and ground steel. Very, very hard. Precision ground within within microns. Quite difficult to work with. I make the cedar boxes. That's an amazing thing, Raymond. I'm sure that I know. There's a lot of Australians who'd love to see this. Whilst we're not all engineers, the art of the engineer is a fascinating business. Great to talk to you. Are we going to say something else? Well, uh, that pump would have cost as much as a motor car. The U.S. government paid about two and a half thousand dollars for that pump in 1955. You could buy a motor car for that. So that's the sort of cost we've got for military equipment. Raymond, great to talk to you. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure, Mac. It's good, good, good to see you. It's a very enthusiastic person. Oh. Keen on mechanisms and machines. I'm keen on, <laughs> well, when you see, yeah, when you see, you know, you might be stupid, but you know what you're looking at. You know something, so, something beautiful is happening here. Where would we be without engineers, Raymond? I'll see you at Country Music Week. I'll come up and have another look around. Lovely to meet you, Raymond. Good on you. Thanks, Mac. It's great. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, g'day, Ian. It's uh, Andrew Harper speaking from uh, the northeast of Argentina. How are you going? Oh, g'day, Andrew. How are you, mate? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew's walking. Uh, well, he's walking around the world, uh, and he's in the um, he's in the leg, uh, the South American leg. How are, how's it going, Andrew? We spoke to you three weeks ago, didn't we? Yeah, more or less. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's going really well. When I last spoke to you, I was still. Uh, in the, the the foothills of the uh, the dry Andes, um, in in the western section of Argentina, and um, I left them about two weeks ago, and now I'm in the subtropics where it's lush and green and uh, terrific thunderstorm today. So it's a, it's a really different trip now. 
ladies and gentlemen, I should tell people, Andrew, because they're just thinking, oh, he's a bloke in Argentina. He's walking uh, along the Tropic of uh, Capricorn and he's um, pulling. Is that You're pulling your little trolley, is that right, Andrew? And how's that all that going? Yeah, that's right. So I'm following the Tropic of Capricorn. Uh, so this is the South American leg, um, having already walked across Australia 17 years ago. Um, and this time, of course, I don't have camels. I've got my little uh, my two-wheeled buggy called uh, TC2, and uh, it weighs about 35 to 40 kilos. And I uh, know it's going really well. It's certainly a big change for me not to be walking with animals, but um, I haven't found pulling the cart too difficult. Um, it was a bit of a task over the Andes because uh, I got up to 4,500 metres a couple of times. But um, now that I'm on the flat, I'm only at uh, 700 metres now, so it, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and the country here is its just like walking through sort of that southeast corner of, of Queensland. You know, it, it's lush and green. There's tobacco plantations. There's, there's everything here. And, and as I said, a lot of rain at the moment. And lots of locals coming up to you and saying uh, g'day or buenas noches or whatever they say. Um, oh. <laughs> my Spanish is oh, not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, my Spanish is even worse, Maka. Um, Couldn't look, be. It, it, yeah, it's amazing because obviously I stand out from the crowd a bit because um, I'm walking on the road, um, you know, dressed in my Aussie bush gear with my Cooper on and I, I don't look like a local for one minute. So um, everyone's, you know, very friendly, very, very helpful. Um I've been offered lifts almost every day, which, of course, I can't, can't take. I have to refuse because I have to walk. Um, I've been offered food and water, um, places to camp. It's been wonderful. Andrew, um, I, uh, yeah, how's all the, all the things like your little trolley? I mean, that's, how much does your trolley weigh? I mean, it's all very well to say, oh, yes, I'm walking and pulling a trolley. I mean, for most of us, and I'm looking around this crowd here, um, we'd be lucky to get down the street. Um, sorry, I did lo- no, I did look, no, sorry, no, get back, get back, uh, but, but, but um, you're a fit young fella, Andrew. Well, I'm fitter now than I was uh, three months ago, that's for sure. Um, the, the, the cart itself, which was made in Germany, uh, weighs eight kilos, and I've got around about at the moment, 25 kilos on there. I had um, up to 30 on there when I had to carry a lot of water, and that, that's obviously the main weight. And then I'm also carrying a backpack, which is 10 kilos. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's been pretty good, actually. I, I, it hasn't been you know, too much weight, even going uphill. Uh, I'm using walking um, poles, which is another new thing for me. But um, now that I'm going through towns, nearly every day or two or three or four towns a day, I don't have to cut as much water, so that's really significantly reduced the weight, which makes uh, things a lot easier. Water's very heavy stuff, isn't it, Andrew? Um, look, it's lovely. Uh, I'm just looking at the weather's coming up in a minute. Are you, um, um, is it the rest of it going to be easy sailing or you've got more hills and stuff to climb back into the Andes or what? You've left them behind? Left them behind, it's all uh, pretty much flat now, Ian, and um, I finished this leg in 10 days' time. Uh, it, it's a two-stage trip, so I come back home uh, just after Christmas and then return here in uh, October and uh, continue on to Brazil and the Atlantic Ocean. So um, I've just about knocked this one over and uh, we'll clock over a 1,000 kilometres, I think, tomorrow. So, uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, I'm starting to get a few uh, Ks under my belt. 
Lovely to talk to you, Andrew. You keep in touch. Um, when you go back over in next October, I think we'll come with you, OK? <laughs> OK. No worries. I can be back up. Please thank Andrew Harper. Thank you, Andrew. I was in uh, Mwilamba, um Thursday, and a friend of mine, Jan Sinclair, came along. She's from, uh, well, I used to call it Tumblegum, but it's in fact Tumbulgum. Tumbulgum. Lovely lady. She does a lot with rainforest plants, and she brought me a little plant. Um, uh, time was she, she gave me a Davidson's plum. Davidson's plum is a lovely little native rainforest plum, which when you make jam out of it or whatever, it's beautiful. Um, so I've got one of those growing uh, at home. But she, she bought me a little bopple nut. Now, the bopple nut is sort of the cousin um, uh, of the uh, macadamia nut. And uh, I spoke to Jan. She'll tell you the story. This is Jan Sinclair, ladies and gentlemen. I'm in Mwilambar at this lovely regional museum. And my friend Jan from Tumbulgum, North, uh, North Tumbulgum, <laughs> Uh, is here with a little plant. Jan, how are you? I'm good, Maka. Good to see you again. Yeah. How did uh, did Tumbulgum get flooded? Yeah, the village did mm. really badly, but we're we're. Because you're right on the river, aren't you? The, the town is of yeah. Tumbulgum, but living at North Tumbulgum, we're up in the ridges, mm. looking towards Springbrook. So we were high and dry, but the causeways cut us off for a couple of days, but nothing to what they had to put up with at the village. Jan, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from time to time has made me a little jar of Davidson's Plum Jam. Davidson's Plum, a native rainforest plum, and it's a beautiful, lovely jam. It's not too sweet, it's not too sour, it's lovely. Although I don't mind jams on the sweet side. <laughs> got a sweet taste. What's this little plant you've got in your hand now, here? Now, this one is a bobble nut, which is related to the macadamia nut. It's mm. a cousin. Um, it's a threatened species, and the seeds aren't viable for very long. They lie around on the ground too long, they don't germinate. So I pick them up as soon as they fall or I shake the tree until the seeds come down and then I can freshly propagate them. Mm. So this year I've got 160 bobble nut babies yeah. um, distributed around the village or around the air valleys. It's a, it's a riparian zone. So they, and they, they, they taste like um, macadamias? Uh, well, the red part is toxic to mm. stop yeah. animals eating yeah. it, I guess. Mother Nature's way of saying, you know, leave it alone. Yeah. We want to propagate. So uh, it's the inside kernel that is really delicious. It's like a cross between macadamia nut and coconut. But uh, we don't want to let too many people know that because we want them all to survive yeah. and go into the ground and new babies. So they, they don't grow these like uh, macadamia nuts up here. There's, there's whole farms of them, isn't there? Bobble nuts are a bit harder to grow, are they? No, they're not harder to grow. It's just that they've been cleared out of the riparian zones where they naturally grow because it's all farmland now, mm. acres and acres of macadamia nuts. And a, so bit and a bit like the kiwi fruit, the macadamia's been sort of hybridised and taken over really by Hawaii, hasn't it? Well, they're back here now planted, but they're all been specially designed so that they grow not too big, not too tall, not too wide. So it's changed completely to, from what the original bush nut was. But I don't think this one will ever be commercialised mm. because it's, um, not many people know about it. Now, are you giving this to me, this little plant? I'm giving it to you because I thought it would go well with your Davidson's plum down there in suburbia. Yes, yeah, so, so how long will this take to grow? And, um, and is it all right taken, growing well, in Sydney I've, or in the capital cities or yeah, is it a rainforest yeah. plant or what? Yeah, you've got a Davidson's plum mm. growing. Yeah. Yeah, well, it likes the same sort of situation, you know. doesn't take up a lot of space, vertically growing, straight up and down. Yeah, it's a lovely tree.
Jan, um, Jan, you, you're not only inter you're interested in native plants, full stop, aren't you? Especially yeah. rainforest. Yes, I am. Mm. I've been uh, fiddling around, playing with uh, the local bush tucker plants now for over 30 years. Before what? I phoned you up to tell you about the goanna oh, that the goanna. swallowed all the <laughs> all the duck eggs, and, then, and then, had, then had to disgorge them. Yeah. <laughs> and my son has never forgiven me because he was out on he was out on a work site with his father when it came on the air, and he was. He embarrassed. Came home and he was very embarrassed. The children are always embarrassed yeah. by their parents, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah, Look, so I'll put that in, and I hope it grows. I'll keep you. I'll keep you in touch and informed. Okay. And there's a Christmas card in there for you. Good luck with it. I hope it does well. Certainly will. It's lovely to see you, Jan. Yeah. Again, and keep up the good work. Good on you. <laughs>